Welcome to the History Guy Podcast, a podcast dedicated to stories of lesser-known historical events told by Lance Geiger, also known as the History Guy on YouTube. I'm Josh, your host, a writer for the channel and eldest son of the History Guy. We tell all kinds of stories about history, from the modern era to the ancient past, so you never know what we're going to talk about next. One thing you can be sure of, it is history that deserves to be remembered. On today's episode, the History Guy tells two stories of harrowing passenger plane incidents in the 80s. First, he tells the story of TACA 110, where pilots did everything right only to find themselves in an unprecedented hailstorm. And that was just the beginning. Then he tells the story of China Flight 6, when a small technical error quickly cascaded into a disaster. Without further ado, let me introduce the History Guy. prototype for the first commercial jet airliner, the de Havilland Comet, first flew in July of 1949, and it actually turned out to be a troubled design. We still had a lot to learn. It was briefly withdrawn from service after three highly publicized accidents occurred just in the year 1956. But some 40 years after the Comet first started flying, you think we would have learned our lessons and would have understood things like basic jet engine design or how weather interacts with engines. But the terrifying tale of Taka International Flight 110, May 24th of 1988, reminds us that Mother Nature still had some things to teach us about the weather and how it impacts a jet engine, and it is a story that deserves to be remembered. Taka International Airlines Flight 110 was a regularly scheduled passenger flight between San Salvador, El Salvador, to New Orleans, Louisiana, with an en route stop in Belize City, Belize. The airplane was a Boeing 737-300. The 300 model was a second-generation derivative of the venerable Boeing 737, a tested and reliable aircraft that had been in service for nearly two decades. In fact, this particular Boeing 737 was nearly new, having first flown in January of the same year, and only having had been in service with Taka Airlines for two weeks. As a testament to how tested the design was, this 737 was the 1,505th to be manufactured. The plane was piloted by a veteran crew. 29-year-old Captain Carlos Dardano had amassed over 13,000 flight hours, more than 4,000 of those on the Boeing 737. Veteran First Officer Dionisio Lopez had more than 12,000 hours of flight time. And in addition, a third pilot, pilot instructor Captain Arturo Soli, was in the cockpit to monitor the performance of the nearly new airplane. In short, this was a routine flight with a veteran air crew flying a nearly new airplane but of a venerable and tested design. That's as safe as it gets. Problems with this flight simply should not have happened. The airplane, with 38 passengers and a crew of seven on board, departed as scheduled from Belize City, and the flight was uneventful until descent into New Orleans from 35,000 feet. During the descent from 35,000 feet, the aircraft encountered severe weather. Very severe weather. The plane had, in fact, encountered an area of intense rainfall, followed by 30 seconds of heavy hail. The storm intensity, stated in terms of liquid water content, was estimated to be 25 to 30 grams per cubic meter, which equates to rainfall at a rate of approximately 30 inches per hour. That should not have happened. The aircraft, like most all modern jet transports, was equipped with weather radar that displays information regarding the intensity of weather in the vicinity of the airplane. Weather radar is intended to provide the pilots with a depiction of weather in front of the plane, and may influence flight path decisions if the weather in front of the airplane is sufficiently intense. 
This radar looks very much like the radar that you see in the evening news, with green areas showing lighter precipitation, with yellow and red areas showing more moderate or severe precipitation. The veteran crew, seeing light to moderate weather in their path, adjusted their flight approach to go between the more severe weather, choosing an air approach that brought them on a due east approach to New Orleans. The pilots had done everything right and had used their radar to avoid exactly the weather they encountered. So why had they hit such severe weather? It might be that the thunderstorm developed quickly, a phenomenon called a rapidly growing thunderstorm. But it also might have been something called radar shadow. On the weather radar screen, areas where no precipitation is seen by the radar are displayed as black, or the same color as the display background. However, when displaying extreme precipitation levels, the radar may display the highest intensities, that is, worse than red, as clear on the radar screen. That is commonly known as radar shadow, and is a result of attenuation of the radar signal. In other words, it is possible for the worst weather to appear on the radar screen as the best weather. As they encountered the severe rain and hail at about 16,500 feet, the pilot radioed New Orleans Aircraft Control, declaring an emergency. Both engines had flamed out. That means that the approximately 140,000 pound jet aircraft had suddenly become an unpowered glider and the pilots were flying by dead sticking. The term is dated, and it's not referring to the flight controls, but to the period of propeller-driven aircraft where a loss of power would turn the propeller into nothing more than a dead stick. Trying to dead stick landing with a passenger airliner can be described as not ideal. Moreover, it should not have happened. The engine stalled due to something called a flame-out, and that has to do with the basic idea of a jet engine. Every internal combustion engine has a combustion chamber, the place where the fuel-air mix is burned. A jet engine basically includes a rotating air compressor powered by a turbine, with the leftover power providing thrust via a propelling nozzle. The process is known as the Brayton thermodynamic cycle. In short, the burning gases in the combustion chamber rush to the open back of the engine at high speed, providing thrust. Lose ignition, and you lose thrust. The engine on Taka International Flight 110 had ingested so much water that the flame in the combustion chamber had been doused. But that still should not have happened. The risk of water causing a flameout was understood at the time, and so the U.S. Federal Aviation Authority had established a water ingestion certification procedure for all jet engine designs. Manufacturers reportedly tested their engines by shooting them with a fire hose. The rain that TACA Flight 110 encountered was supposedly well within these certification standards. Moreover, knowing the threat of weather, the pilots had taken appropriate precautions, switching the engine to continuous ignition and activating the engine anti-icing system. And yet both engines still had flameouts. Why? It all has to do with hail. According to the National Transportation Safety Board, prior to TACA Flight 110, the risk of hail was seen to be from the hail causing damage to engine components, essentially acting like a foreign object hitting the engine. Hail was not considered for its effect on engine operation. Jet engine fan designs were built with the idea of preventing water ingestion because the turbine fan blades centrifuged water away from the engine core. It was assumed that hail would work pretty much the same as water. But testing after the accident determined that it doesn't. In fact, hail follows a much more ballistic path that, at the right airspeed and turbine speeds, allows the hail to shoot straight into the engine core. In fact, the FAA realized, at some fan speeds and aircraft airspeed combinations, ingestion in the core is greatly increased, as hail misses the fan blades and goes directly into the core, something commonly called the Venetian blind effect. 
standards designed to prevent water from entering the engine failed because of the combination of airspeed, turbine speed, and hail. But even a double engine flameout should not be catastrophic because an engine that is flamed out can be restarted just by the wind blowing through the engine turning the turbine, something called a windmill restart. And even if you don't have enough airspeed to do a windmill restart, you can fire up the engine's starter motors and restart the engine that way. Just the previous year, an Air Europe 737 descending through rain and hail over Greece had also suffered a double flameout, but the crew managed to restart the engines and land without trouble. Likewise, the crew of TACA Flight 110 attempted to restart the engines. When the windmill restart failed, they were able to get the turbine spinning using the starter motor, but the engines could not get to idle speed and were not producing thrust. There was still too much water in the engines. As the FAA explains, once the engine fails, it cannot be restarted until the water-to-air ratio decreases to a point where the fuel-to-air ratio can once again maintain combustion. Now the situation was desperate. The plane was without power, and low altitude and turbulence from the storm gave them a limited glide ratio. Air traffic control quickly came up with options, including Lakefront Airport, whose runway was minimally sufficient, and U.S. Interstate 10, which has one straight mile for every five miles of highway. Unable to make it to either of these, the pilots opted for a vector to Lake Pontchartrain, attempting a dangerous dead stick water ditching. New Orleans Air Traffic Control lost the transponder signal as the aircraft reached 1,600 feet. They assumed the aircraft had crashed and quickly dispatched a Coast Guard helicopter from Naval Air Station Joint Reserve Base New Orleans, assuming that the water rescue would be critical. What those helicopters found, frankly, should not have happened. TACA Flight 110 was parked on a narrow, muddy New Orleans levee, right next to NASA's Michaud Assembly Facility. At just 700 feet, First Officer Lopez had seen the levee and identified it as being wide enough for a landing. The crew had managed a maneuver called a side slip, something generally reserved for a small craft, not an unpowered 737, and had landed perfectly, with no injuries to passengers or crew, and minimal damage to the aircraft. As one New Orleans air traffic controller said, after more than two decades of air traffic control, I still say, this is the most splendid piece of air traffic teamwork and the most incredible piece of flying I've ever been witness to or heard of. The flight crew had mere seconds to assess the situation as to whether it's the lake or the field, and they nailed it. After the accident, the National Transportation Safety Board mandated a change to the water ingestion standards and certain changes to the CFM-56 engine that's used on the Boeing 737. Those included changing the engine spinner from conical to a combination elliptical and conical, or conoptical shape, that testing shows helps to guide the hail radially outward. A change in the spacing of the fan blades to better deflect hail away from the engine core, a sensor to force the combustor to continuously ignite under heavy rain, and extra bleed doors to help drain water from the engine. The plane was minimally damaged, repairs to the engine were made on site, and the plane was towed to NASA's Mashad facility nearby, where, after further repairs, it used the facility's main road, Saturn Boulevard, to take off and fly to a full repair facility. Saturn Road had, at one time, been a factory airfield, as airplanes were manufactured on the site during the Second World War. After repairs, that 737 was put back into service with TACA Airlines. Eventually, it was sold to Southwest Airlines and it continued service until it was retired in December of 2016. But despite 28 years of service, it was really that one extraordinary landing, a landing that frankly should not have happened, that most deserves to be remembered.
Now's the part of the episode where we get to chat with the history guy. A little bit about what we just heard, what we're going to hear, and some behind-the-scenes stuff you only get to hear about on the podcast. And we'd like to welcome back Betty Jo, my grandmother and the mother of the history guy. So I think that if there's one thing that this episode makes really clear, it's that no matter how unlikely something is and how much it shouldn't happen, uh, that doesn't mean it can't. <laughs> uh, that's what's interesting about it is that, it, it, you know, and throughout the episode, I'm saying it shouldn't have happened almost facetiously, but actually so much in there should not have happened. Uh, and it did. Uh, and that's part of what makes it such an extraordinary story, uh, because, uh you know, prior to that, I mean, the 737 had been fine for 20 years prior to that, even though that one was only two weeks old. The 737 had been fine for 20 years. No one had run into this exact instance uh, where hail behaved so differently than water and, and, and caused the flame out. So it is, uh, I, it, this is a case where nearly as we can tell, the pilots did everything exactly as they were supposed to do. And it was a combination of wind speed and weather and how the weather showed on the weather radar at the time and, and uh, uh, that led to this unique circumstance. Uh, where they had not just double flame out, but they could not restart those engines. It's terrifying, absolutely terrifying to think that fight went perfectly until the last, you know, 10 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, one of the things, I mean, what makes this one so, uh, so incredible is that they, it was, it, they wouldn't have probably flown through that part of the storm, uh, if they had known what that part of the storm looked like. And it, it, so that, yeah, the background on the radar is black. Yeah. On a rave, on the regular radar screen. And, uh, the worse the weather, the darker it gets. Uh, and so there's a, a spot where what is looks like no weather can actually be the worst weather. Yeah. So it's not really clear if that was just a storm that rose very, very quickly or mm -hmm. if the radar completely lied to them about how bad the weather was when they flew into it. And again, you know, they've been flying 737s for, for two decades and not quite yeah. run into the same sort of problem. So, I mean, that itself was a unique. But it sounds like, you know, the pilots were doing the right thing and were aiming for the spot to get through the weather. And they ended up running into this. I mean, if you look at the nose of the aircraft, it's astounding how yeah. much hail they ran into. Yeah. Yeah, you think of that. Uh, I think of you know when, we, when you get hail on your car and how loud it can be. And I wonder what the I wonder what it was like in that plane when you hit that hit that hail in the rain like that. Uh, yeah. Something that they. I mean, I would never be prepared for that. Uh, but I mean, the plane held together through it, and of course, it was apparently supposedly rated to get through almost everything that it did. It just was that yes. they had tested just, that. And they, they they redesigned engines because of it. So one of the yeah. things I don't mention in the episode uh, uh, is because you know, there's always so much time in this episode. I didn't mention the pilot Carlos Sardano. He was a legend, an absolute legend. Of course, did amazing work here. But he he yeah. was actually blind in one eye. He was he was flying commercial flight out of El Salvador. Uh, and was a bullet came through and he was blinded in one eye and he managed to go through all the requirements it would take to recertify as a pilot. Uh, and, oh, wow. and then he flew this, this tack of flight. He, he continued through. And at some point, uh, the, the, the Dardano family uh, saw this episode and said a very nice thank you. I sent a message oh. saying, that, you know, thank you for, because I, you know, he's the man's, the man's a hero. I mean, it, oh, really, God. I mean, in that, in that this is, this is this pilot who, you know, took, I mean, they, the, the best case scenario was that they were going to fly into, uh, the, you know, that they were going to land on the river, uh, which yeah. you know be very dangerous. And instead they, you know, manage this landing that these, yeah, we have talk about a lot of airplane accidents on the history guys. It's just one of the pieces of history that we talk about. But it's always, uh, I, it's really interesting to tell these ones where it just looks so bad and everybody yeah. comes out okay. I mean, they managed to do it. I don't. I hope I'm not spoiling the episode for everybody because you're in the middle of the episode going, "Oh my God, I'm going to make it." You know <laughs> what's going on here? You know the engine stall. That's okay. You can just restart engines. No, they won't restart. <laughs> <laughs> no, they won't do that. And then when they when they fell off of radar, they just assumed that they had gone oh, yeah. in the water and were immediately calling the Coast Guard rescue. And you know, there's the plane just sitting there next to the Michaud facility, 
uh, next to a NASA facility, just Wild. fine. Well, I love the fact it says it says and it was parked. Yeah, it was parked. Yeah, it's got off the plane. <laughs> the very hardly any damage to it. Yeah, I think I, I think I've had worse landings at airports. So. Yeah, <laughs> and it's true yeah. that uh, you know he the the pilot is a hero because I mean my goodness, uh, talk about something that would be difficult to be prepared for. And, yeah. it, and and at the point that you're, you know, you're like, you try this, you're like, okay, there's a system for this. We do this. And then, <laughs> and it just keeps going wrong. But also, does, the, yeah. I mean, it's, you get a very good idea that we, you know, we designed these planes to be as safe as possible. Mm-hmm. And yes. even though there was so much water, uh, the jet engines have been tested for that. Yeah. And so they, they would shoot fire hoses <laughs> into the things. So yeah, yeah it was, uh, and then you run into this unique condition where if you've yeah. got the right airspeed and the right turbine speed and the right amount of hail, that the hail goes straight through and ignores the, you know, the, the, the effect of this yep. circum, uh, the, the, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it pulls them out, right? Yeah, so, it doesn't get uh, anyway, centrifuged a, to the Centrifuged, to the yeah, the centrifugal yeah. effect. And then you just end up with a bucket of ice in the middle of your uh, combustion chamber. Uh, and, yeah, they had to completely redesign engines because of this. So it is – it, through some of the comments – I've never flown TACA, uh, but uh, through some of the comments, there are people who at least were arguing that TACA does not have the best safety record. But in this case, I mean, these pilots were incredibly experienced pilots. And, and what they did was an, ex- an extraordinary uh, – uh, piloting a, a bit of piloting uh, yeah. and you have to wonder how many pilots actually would have necessarily been prepared to handle it in the, in the same way that they did but it is you've got an airframe that's got 20 years of service behind it it's yeah. proven to be a very solid and safe airplane and you have an airplane itself that's that's you know less than a year old uh, and uh, and so you know it's really it's hard to have a safer condition than having and they had an extra pilot with them too yeah. because they were they were checking out the new airplane so to have three veteran pilots uh, in a very in a, in a new aircraft of a, of a venerable design, I mean that's that's as safe as it gets, and and yet they had to you know they wound up sitting on top yeah. of a levee in New Orleans. You, you wonder, there's so many different variables that you know if they had gone just a little differently, you know this could have been a a very serious tragedy, and mm-hmm. it it seems like you know things so many things came together for it to exactly go wrong but in some ways so many things came together for it to go exactly right yeah, you, as well you pop out from beneath these clouds and you're looking at the water and the and the co-pilot says i think we can land on that levee there what are the yeah. odds of that well and then and, they do and, the, you know very the, extraordinary maneuver a side slip yeah, yeah. <laughs> in an unpowered 737 they somehow get onto that <laughs> that landing track at, with you know 10 seconds to make yeah. that decision so and it's a hard it's a it's a hard maneuver uh we we've talked about that maneuver in some other episodes i think they did mm-hmm. a side slip in the uh the gimli glider uh mm-hmm. with which was a which well, another similar story of yeah. they, they all should have died and they didn't <laughs> they didn't because and i mean you just and it was another thing where there was just luck involved is that yeah they happened to see this because landing on the water was i mean the water landing was going to be much much less safe and yes, they just managed yes. well to... certainly you wouldn't have saved the aircraft oh yeah, but I mean, oh, yeah, yeah right. there's, there's a much greater chance that they would have had a significant loss of life yeah uh, and instead you know not, and yeah i don't know i've been on in new orleans a couple of times and the levees don't seem so solid if you want <laughs> I feel like you're walking up <laughs> they... i'm kind of kind of surprised the plane didn't just like sink when it landed on the thing yeah, it was it, in it... the middle of a rainstorm like that but it was solid enough to land the seventh and then the Crazy. odd just the absolute odd weird coincidence that it yeah. happens to land next to a facility that at one point manufactured aircraft so that the main <laughs> road was actually a runway and that they just yeah. pushed it out and took off, you know. Incredible. They were able to do that. And that, I, I mean, and it, it took off. I mean, it doesn't sound like they really had to do emergency repairs on hand or anything. It just, well, because really. I'm sure it was something to tow a 737 oh, yeah, right, off but... the side of a levee. And... <laughs> I didn't see. But... I didn't, I, I've seen pictures of that, but, but you know, obviously they weren't public domain, yeah. so they're not in the video. But I mean, <laughs> I'm sure there was some effort involved. It's not where you usually park 
Uh, but uh, and it had to be quite surprising for passengers who were expecting to land at the airport to land, <laughs> land on the levee there. There probably out, was some, to get uh, out in grass. Yeah, so a trick to get them all where they needed to go. I, I would hate to have had a connecting flight. Uh, <laughs> I think you'd be late for your connecting flight. Yeah, well, yeah. And one one of the things that really scares me is the fact that when you say the word glider, all you can think about is all those World War II films that you've seen where we sent the gliders into Europe. Yeah, and 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 and. I suppose some of them landed, but most of them basically... <laughs> they look pretty bad on landing, um, yeah. Those, those uh, all all you can think of is crash, 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 and yeah. here they're gliding in a 747, yeah, for heaven's sake. Yeah, and you find yeah. out that uh, that uh, planes... Well, they're hard to glide because they're, I mean, they're they're bigger and heavier. Than, yeah, yeah, they I mean, weigh There's a, a lot, reason yeah. why we don't, you know, we don't use, we don't call those gliders. Uh, but as, you know, as long as it's a plane, I guess it can glide at least somewhat. It is. Uh, and yeah, I, the Gimli one gl- glided for a while. I flew, uh, I mean, I used to live down in Arizona, so I flew Southwest 737s. Pretty, there's a, I think that there's a good chance I was on that airplane at some point because I went <laughs> sort of 20 years down in, in, in with Southwest down in the Southwest there. I've yeah. been on so many Southwest 737s. I think I've been on all of them. So uh, I wonder now, because I had no idea at the time if, if I you were on, on, that, on that aircraft. Just extraordinary that it could have that happen. I could lose both engines, have to crash land on a levee, and then just serve another 20 years of service yeah. uh, and still fly around. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, they, 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 they re- literally redesigned how they did the nose yeah. cone, how they did the, how they spaced the, uh, uh, the 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 blades that are inside the turbine, yeah. uh, and they added just like little doors that can drain water out, and out. everything Amazing. that they did was uh, because we had no idea that the, the ice would come straight through like it did. And this is, you know, it it, it makes me, um, it kind of reminds me in in when you're designing like a video game. If you're designing a very large video game, you you test it, like you test it and test it and test it and test it. And then as soon as you let it out into the world, there's like a million bugs that people find. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, like because you didn't expect people to do making YouTube videos is the same thing, but that's right? true. <laughs> yeah. So it's like it's like with the plane, you know, they we they tested it, they tested it, they prepared for all these various things, uh, but you can't prepare you know there's always going to be some kind of incredibly specific event that you didn't think of and that's you know that's what this is and i think it's uh, it speaks really quite well to you know how we build planes and how hard we work to make them it safe does, that yeah. it altered so much because of course i mean this this was a kind of plane that had been flying for 20 years without running into this particular is, yeah. kind of incident but, you know newer planes are more fly by wire i don't know that the pilots would be as easily able to take control as they are now i'm not a pilot uh, but I mean, we hear that sometimes when we make yeah. these episodes. They're saying, oh, you know, pilots aren't trained to do that anymore. I, you know, I don't know. I mean, we still it's true. You know, airline crashes are still very, very rare, and, and yeah. death in commercial airlines is extremely rare. Uh, and this would have been a terrible tragedy. Of course, it had it had it had Absolutely. a crash. But I mean, it's it's largely. I mean, you can find some YouTube videos on it, but it's largely forgotten because they yeah. didn't. And that's that's uh, you know, sometimes it's good to be forgotten history because uh, this yeah, because it more wasn't remembered. A, yeah, uh, if you crash your airplane into the NASA facility, I think they, that it would still be you know more yeah. remembered than if you just landed it next door but that's you know that's these were all people who who went on to to live their lives thanks mm-hmm. to uh thanks to someone who was uh able to think fast and land a plane when they had to and that's mm-hmm. i mean it's incredible i mean it truly is you know that's the kind of stuff that it does sometimes get forgotten and i'm glad that we're able to tell these stories too along with the very many stories that we tell that you know don't necessarily no, or, end as well the ending isn't quite as good yeah yeah and it, but you just have to imagine uh and i don't know how much the passengers really recognize until they figure out they were landing in the grass but i mean in that yeah. cockpit 
That's a very thrilling story. <laughs> that was <laughs> crazy. Because this whole the whole thing that the episode talks about takes it takes course over a matter of just a few minutes. Yeah, at the uh, very end, of, the, at the very yeah, end of the flight, very end that, of the flight, suddenly none of your engines are working. They're giving you vectors to airports you cannot possibly reach. Yeah, you're waiting to come out of the worst storm you've ever been in. Your engines won't restart, and you pop out of the clouds and have to decide whether you're going to land on the left or the right. And, uh, and that, <laughs> I imagine they remember it. <laughs> yes, right, and I I don't know. I wonder how much the uh, I wonder how much the. I mean, certainly there was there had to be some kind of turbulence when you hit uh, metric tons of uh, hail, but I I, oh, I yeah. do wonder how much. Well, I mean, uh, there had to be because the that photograph of the oh nose gosh, of the yeah. plane where it just had beaten all the paint off the nose of the plane. I've it's, never seen anything like that. Dented yeah. up even, and, uh, and really. that does give you a good idea of how strong the aircraft aluminum is too, and didn't knock out the you know the windows or, the or anything. Like that. Yeah, that's interesting because the... we were we were flying to meet Josh in Wyoming, and and uh, 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 a plane drove by and kicked up a rock and knocked out the windshield of our aircraft, and we had to get a new airplane. True story. That really <laughs> happened. Somehow. That taca flight through flew through that hail, it was just, uh, and it's uh, yeah, and, and all it did was beat some paint off the nose, but the windows were fine. I don't yeah. understand the difference. A few hundred there. miles an hour uh, through the. Yeah. <laughs> and you wonder how exactly that works out, uh, but it's it is. I mean, it's just amazing, and I I don't know what it's like. I don't know how much goes on. You know, with planes, I certainly hope I've never been on a plane that had you know someone announced an emergency over the uh, intercom, which I can I can thank. Thank God for and go ahead and knock on knock yeah. on some wood as well. Uh, but yeah, I'm not sure if they had uh, a time even to do say anything yeah. to come on this one. Yeah. You're well, busy trying on, to save everyone. I was on one recently where they said they were going to attempt to land <laughs> in, in in Liberal Kansas, and Yikes. I was going. I don't like the word attempt. <laughs> <laughs> I'm rather hoping that <laughs> it wasn't hail; it was dust. But uh, anyway, they attempted and made it. In the last year, I got to do both a bulk and a go around, and I got to find out the difference between the two. And as one of the pilots said, Well, your bingo card's full. <laughs> <laughs> You've gotten all the. <laughs> <laughs> Aside from die in an accident. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll go ahead and hope that that does not happen. Yeah, well. And of course, it is, you know, they, they tell you to look at all the, the statistics and they say, Oh, you know, it's, it's the safest way to safest way to travel but i'll say it doesn't always feel that way <laughs> yeah i mean so you know you don't fall that far when your car crashes but yes yeah. per yeah per mile and per and uh, per hour it's it's much safer than most forms of travel and and that's uh, you know there's a lot of aircraft flying all the time commercial aircraft yeah. and very rarely are there accidents uh but when they are there they can be quite exciting because you're yeah. uh you know you're up there in the air in a, in a huge brick yeah. you know with 200 of your you know best friends are shoved, in a, shoved in a metal tube you know <laughs> plummeting through space then that's <laughs> i mean yeah that's not that's not fun uh you know i i just wrote it's an episode that's not out yet but i was writing on uh air traffic control and one you know one of the things that you really start to see when you look at the history of air traffic control is that uh we make changes uh usually when someone dies uh, someone dies and then they're like oh we need to fix this. And so it is, it's good in this situation that, you know, uh, no one had to die for us to decide we need to make new engines. Uh, Cause before, before that, I, well, you know, some of the earliest, some of the earliest planes uh, crashed into each other uh, just because we didn't have anyone up there saying, uh, don't, don't do that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Keep, or making sure that, you know, if you're flying in one direction that there isn't another plane just flying straight, straight at you. No. 
That's and where that's, some of the accents occurred. Yeah, and we've yeah. learned, uh, you know, that radars change and air traffic yep. controls change, but we have so much more flight going on now. Yeah, uh, you know that we have more close calls. I've heard. Uh, I don't know if that's true. I'm not a pilot. I, I guess we know. I need to make that clear on here. You know, we're writing this from a layman's perspective, yes. uh, and I've had some pilots say, "Oh, you did a great job of describing this." I've had others say, "Oh, you don't really know what's going on." I've, I certainly have never been in the cockpit when, when the engines were flamed out. No. Uh, but uh, that's part of what makes this, you know, the history guy, the history guy, is that we're, you know, we're telling this from the perspective. Of, of you know just a layman seeing what's going on and telling the story uh, because you could have I mean there's all sorts of you know YouTube videos that'll show you you know the, the mechanics of it but I mean the story of this one is just a wonderful story it is a story of, of uh, how they managed to uh, navigate their way through this uh, that's just an exciting story to tell and, and yeah. that's why history is fun so if you're a longtime listener of the podcast, then you must like Forgotten History. And if you want us to keep kind of doing what we're doing and you enjoy our content, well, then there are some ways that you can support the History Guy and keep us making more stories on Forgotten mm -hmm. History. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, this is this is our job. I mean, this is Josh and I do this for a living, and it's an awful lot of fun. But uh, you know, we do have to pay for the cat food. That's how I put it around here because I got the three cats. Uh, and there's various ways if you like the history guy that you can support the history guy. We have uh, we've different people like to do it different ways. So if you just want to say on a monthly basis, put in two dollars or three dollars or five dollars or fifteen dollars or whatever you want to, uh, and and uh, get some uh, exclusive content for doing that and, and just support the history guy. Uh, we have a site on a Patreon, uh, a History Guy on Patreon. Uh, you can be a member on YouTube. So if you're on YouTube, just check the me membership button. Uh, and we also have uh, a community at Locals, and they all get uh, some videos they get earlier. If we're doing one that has sponsored content, they get it without the sponsored content. Uh, and it's a chance to talk to the History Guy, and, and, uh, and we give you some exclusive stuff too. Uh, and so it, those are just different ways that you can support the History Guy. Uh, so uh, if you think this podcast is great, uh, there's lots of things that you can do. You can also just go to our webpage, which is thehistoryguy.com, uh, and make a donation straight through there through PayPal, too. So uh, any, every dollar counts because it really helps us uh, continue to be able to uh, produce this history content. Uh, I'm lucky in that I don't have to moonlight and do a second job. And uh, if you want us to keep producing content, that's, you know, it's up to you. If you, if you want to give us a dollar or five dollars or five thousand uh, dollars, you know, whatever you want to give, uh, it can make a huge difference to make sure we keep making this content free. Next up, the History Guy tells the story of China Flight 6, where a small technical error nearly became an absolute disaster. By any standard, flying on a commercial airliner is a relatively safe form of travel. Dr. Arnold Barnett of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology determined that the fatality risk of a commercial airline flight between 1978 and 1987 was just one in some 750,000 boardings. But that doesn't mean that things couldn't go wrong. I mean, your flight might run into bad weather. There might be a mechanical issue with your plane. There might even be pilot error. Or for the 274 passengers and crew of China Air Flight 006 on February 19, 1985. All of the above. That terrifying time when a 747 fell 30,000 feet in just under two and a half minutes is history that deserves to be remembered. The first Boeing 747 rolled off the assembly plant on September 30th, 1968, the result of a request by Pan American Airlines to create a larger jet that would reduce per-seat cost and democratize air travel. The 747 was the first designed to be called a jumbo jet. 230 foot, 10 inches long, the 747 is a quad jet, 
that is powered by four jet engines. The plane could accommodate as many as 550 passengers, although it is typically configured to carry 366 in what was at the time an unprecedented 10 abreast seating. The aircraft's iconic hump allowed a raised cockpit. This was with an eye towards the future of air travel. At the time, it was assumed that passenger jets would be superseded by supersonic transports, and the raised cockpit would allow an easy conversion of the 747 design to become a freighter airplane by installing a front cargo door. It wasn't necessary. The 747 would outlive the era of the SST. The design proved to be rugged and popular. The first 747 entered service with Pan American Airlines in 1970, and production continues today. Boeing currently plans to halt construction in 2022, more than a half century after the 747 first took to the skies, with more than 1,500 built. The 747 has garnered an exceptional safety record, with few accidents related to aircraft construction or design over millions of flight hours. The plane is so reliable that two modified versions are used by the United States Air Force to transport the President, although the designation Air Force One actually is used to designate any aircraft carrying the President rather than a specific plane. Modified versions of the 747 were also used by the National Aeronautics and Space Administration to transport space shuttle orbiters. The heavily modified 747-100s were called Space Carrier Aircrafts, or SCAs. By the early 1970s, the 747 was facing competition from trijet wide-bodied aircraft, the McDonnell Douglas DC-10 and Lockheed L-1011 TriStar. In response to requests from Pan American Airlines and Iran Air, Boeing developed a shorter version of the 747 that would offer greater range and higher cruising speed for the ultra-long-range routes, such as Iran Air's nonstop from New York to Tehran. By modifying the 747, Boeing would have a competitor for the DC-10 and L-1011. Originally, the plane was going to be called the 747-SB, meaning short-bodied. But the name was changed to 747-SP, meaning Special Performance, recognizing the plane's greater range and cruising speed. The most noticeable change was the length. The 747-SP is 47 feet shorter than other 747 models, although the tail is also higher to compensate for the decrease in yaw moment arm resulting from the shortened fuselage. The SP could accommodate 230 passengers in a three-class cabin, 331 in a two-class cabin, and a maximum of 400 passengers in one class. The first 747-SP was delivered to Pan American Airlines on March 5, 1976. While the design was promising, new competing aircraft and rising fuel costs meant that it did not achieve the popularity that Boeing hoped, and only 45 were built. 747-SP-9 N4522V first flew in June of 1982. On February 19, 1985, the plane, which was owned by the Wilmington Trust Company of Wilmington, Delaware, and leased by China Air, was flying a regularly scheduled route between Taipei, Taiwan, and Los Angeles, California, a flight of about 11 hours. China Air Flight 6 was using the call sign Dynasty 006. The plane was carrying 251 passengers and 23 crew. The air crew were experienced. The captain, 55-year-old Min Wan Ho, had more than 15,500 flight hours, with more than 3,700 of those on the Boeing 747. First officer Zhu Yue Chang, age 53, had more than 7,700 flight hours, with more than 4,500 of those on the 747. Rounding out the crew was flight engineer Ku Pin Wei, age 55. Because of the length of the flight, additional crew, Relief Captain Qin Yuan Lao and Relief Flight Engineer Shi Lung Su were also aboard. The relief crew would pilot the plane during cruise flight, allowing the primary flight crew to rest. 
Most of the flight proceeded without incidents, and at about 10 a.m. local time off the coast of California, some 320 nautical miles northwest of San Francisco, the main crew was back at the controls. The problem started with simple turbulence. The plane was on autopilot, and as wind speeds caused the speed to fluctuate, the autopilot compensated by moving the throttles. As the airspeed slowed, the autopilot increased the throttle to maintain airspeed. As it increased, it decreased throttle. The next time it went to increase throttle, the numbers 1, 2, and 3 engines responded, but the flight engineer noticed in a gauge that the fourth engine was not increasing power. The engineer then tried manually throttling the Pratt & Whitney JT9D-78 turbofan engine. While the captain could feel nothing peculiar, the gauges continued to show that engine 4 was not responding. Flight engineer Wei told the captain that the engine 4 had flamed out, meaning that the flame had been extinguished in the combustion chamber and would have to be restarted. The plane was at 41,000 feet, and according to the book, the maximum altitude to attempt a restart was 30,000 feet. Captain Ho ordered First Officer Chang to request a lower flight level from ground control, but also instructed Engineer Wei to attempt to restart the engine anyway. The restart failed. The crew had already made a critical mistake. The National Transportation Safety Board later determined that Engine 4 had not flamed out. The engine had been written up before for having an occasional problem with not providing enough thrust. The problem had to do with a fuel control valve, which had worn down slightly, slowing fuel input into the engine and causing sluggish acceleration. The problem was small and should not have created a major problem. But the engine throttling to maintain airspeed had created a large issue with something called bleed air. Bleed air is pressure that is diverted from the engines and used to pressurize the cabin and power the air conditioning. While those functions are necessary, bleed air reduces airflow through the engine, thus reducing its ability to produce thrust. As the fourth engine accelerated more slowly than the other three, its bleed air valve was held open larger than the other three, and the engine, already having difficulty, took on a higher percentage of the bleed air load. The engine had not flamed out, but was rather hung. The problem likely would have been fixed immediately if Wei had followed the checklist for restart, which included closing the bleed air valves. But Wei missed a step in the checklist, and the engine remained hung. This still should not have been catastrophic. The 747 could operate on three engines, but a larger problem was developing. As engine number four was not producing power, the plane was dealing with asymmetric thrust. The left wing was producing more thrust than the right. This would naturally cause the plane to bank right, as the left wing would produce more lift. However, the problem was not obvious, as the autopilot was compensating for the difference. But the autopilot of the period only had control over the ailerons, not the rudder, and the yaw was slowly pushing the plane farther over than the autopilot could correct. The plane was slowly banking, rolling over right, but the problem was essentially being masked by the autopilot. Captain Ho was apparently focused on the flight engineer and what was going on with the number four engine, and that problem with the banking went unnoticed until it showed in airspeed. As the plane banked, increasing drag and the power reduced from engine 4, the plane began to decelerate. Not realizing the underlying problem, Captain Ho changed the autopilot input, and was selecting a nose-down attitude in order to increase airspeed, which seemed to be the biggest problem. As the plane nosed down, the bank increased to 45 degrees, but Captain Ho, still most focused on airspeed, decided to switch off the autopilot and take control of the plane. Switching off the autopilot was a move that blogger Admiral Cloudberg, who described himself as an analyzer of plane crashes, noted would have immediate and catastrophic consequences. The NTSB report indicated that after Ho disengaged the autopilot, the plane yawed and rolled further right. Cloudberg speculates that when the autopilot disengaged, it stopped applying the aileron inputs that were attempting to counteract the bank, causing the plane to roll immediately right. At this point, the website This Day in Aviation explains, the airplane departed 
controlled flight, rolled over, and dived. Cloudberg noted the 747 began to lose altitude at an alarming rate as it rolled clear over on its roof, catching the pilots completely by surprise. By then the plane had moved into clouds, and without reference points, both the captain and the first officer became disoriented. The attitude gauges were spinning, but the captain could not accurately perceive what was going on and assumed that they must have failed, as what they showed would have been so irregular. Flight recordings indicated the plane was inverted, but the crew did not realize it or note it. While in the cabin, objects flew around. One passenger described the people not buckled in, popping up like popcorn. Relief Captain Lau had been thrown from his bunk, was trying to make it his way to his, the cockpit. And the San Francisco Examiner reported that he was thrown to the floors. The jumbo jet dived, mighty G-forces immobilizing him. The paper went on. With 440,000 pounds of metal and flesh hurtling out of the sky, the altimeters went wild and made small change out of the precious capital of height and safety. Cloudberg explained, In just 33 seconds, Flight 006 plunged 10,000 feet as the pilots fought to regain control. As the plane approached 30,000 feet, it rapidly rolled over level and began to pull up, subjecting the occupants to a soul-crushing, face-melting 4.8 vertical Gs. And then, after executing a full 360-degree aileron roll, the 747 slowed down to less than 100 knots, possibly stalling the airplane, before it rolled hard to the right and entered a second, even steeper plunge. Flight engineer Wei, his head pinned to the central control panel by the G-forces and unable to move his arms, yelled that the other three engines had failed. Actually, Captain Ho had throttled them back, trying to slow the descent, but Wei could not lift his head to see the gauges. The plane was beginning to break up, its main landing gear being ripped from its mountings and tearing off the gear doors. The NTSB reported, The two inboard main gear struts were left dangling. Large parts of the horizontal stabilizer were torn off. The airplane lost 30,000 feet in altitude in less than two and a half minutes. The plane broke through the bottom of the clouds at approximately 11,000 feet. Captain Ho, finally with a point of reference, was able to orient himself, the examiner explained. The 747 broke out of the clouds at 11,000 feet, and the captain, aided at last by visual references, began to see which way was up. He slowly regained control and stabilized the machine. By then, the number four engine had actually flamed out, but the crew was able to restart it normally. The crew took the plane back to a safer altitude and, almost miraculously, intended to continue to Los Angeles, as planned. However, they realized that the inboard landing gear was down, causing drag, and one of the hydraulic systems had been drained, apparently when the entire left outboard elevator had been torn off, along with its actuator. Ho declared an emergency and requested permission to land immediately in San Francisco. Shockingly, there were only two serious injuries aboard the plane. A crew member had badly strained their back, and one of the passengers had broken their foot. When the pilots regained control of the plane, the passengers cheered. One of them told the press, I really thought... That was it. The NTSB report noted several errors by the crew, noting that Captain Ho was distracted first by the evaluation of the engine malfunction and second by his attempts to arrest the decreasing airspeed, and that because of these distractions he was unable to assess properly and promptly the approaching loss of airplane control. He may have over-relied on the autopilot. In many ways, the accident aboard Dynasty 006 represents the combination of human fallibility and automation which reduces pilots to mere gauge watchers. Flying Magazine noted in October 1986 that China Air Flight 6 graphically shows what a misalliance the marriage of man and computer can sometimes be. Yet somehow both pilot and machine managed to survive, something that the examiner credits to the structural soundness and aerodynamic capabilities of the 747. The newspaper quotes Jeffrey Wilkinson, the former head of the British Air Accident Investigation Branch. 
The way that 747 was handled, it had no God-given right not to break up. And on paper, the people aboard had no right to survive. So I mean, one of the things that kind of struck me about this one is that they're talking about the size of the 747. Yeah, when it came out, it was just that was the first of those big, wide-body, massive aircraft. Yeah, uh, and I startled everybody at the time. Yeah, that really kind of the first half of this episode is talking about the history of the 747, which is an iconic aircraft. And I thought it was important to discuss here, first of all, because I never talked about it on the channel yet, but secondly, because the the story of the 747 and how sturdy it is, uh, and how it kept in service even though it was less economical than the three-engine uh, uh, alternatives, is really part of the story. Uh, because really the story of China Air Flight 006 is what a 747 can go through and not break into 100 pieces. That's, <laughs> that's Aside from that, from, from the, from the uh, China Air part of this story, uh, it's just the whole time is spent going, I, I can't believe uh, that this happened. Uh, and, you know, I can't believe that this plane didn't just come apart. So it is, uh, it's an extraordinary, I, you know, I didn't know that the reason that they have that big raised bump on top is because they thought supersonic transports were going to replace commercial aircraft. Uh, and so they were building that so it could be easily, easily converted into a transport aircraft. And then it ends up serving like four decades. Yeah. And that's, uh, it's amazing. Cause you know, the, I had never thought of that either. I'd, I mean, I've seen planes like that, of course, but uh, you think, you know, even back then they were thinking, oh, it's going to be supersonic aircraft. And like, you know, we don't really have traveling. Yeah, we don't we don't want to design this whole, you know, aircraft and then uh, and then have it, you know, go out of service in 10 years or 20 years because of it. And then it ends up serving for such a long time. Uh, they were produced until just last year, I think, is when they finally stopped producing the, the 747, even new 747s. Uh, and the story of the 747 SP, the special purpose, is an interesting story uh, because uh, that was kind of a new life to an old aircraft. Uh, and I think probably more people have seen the traditional 747 rather than the SP, the shorter version. They were less common, but that's the flight that was going on here. Uh, and uh, they they were uh, uh, absolute, you know, bearers of aircraft. They were absolute. They were very sturdy. They were very stable. They uh, were uh, pilots said that they were a joy to fly. Uh, and certainly we'll find out that even in extreme conditions, yeah. <laughs> they can... It can tolerate a lot. It's amazing. So you really have to be impressed with it. And this is this one's a little bit different than the TACA flight in that the, the pilots, the aircrew, certainly did not do everything right. They made yeah. some really significant errors, uh, but uh, they still, in the end, just uh, uh, in extraordinary com conditions, they were able to get control of that aircraft. And it's another one of those stories where you got to think everybody in the aircraft thought this was this is it. I mean, everybody had to be saying goodbye to, you know, uh, praying to whatever day they yeah. pray to and saying goodbye. Uh, and they end up, you know, landing safely. And uh, I didn't know you could land safely on an airplane that had spun so wildly that the gear flew through the doors and came down by itself. Yeah, there's a, there's we talked about not wanting to be on the last flight. Uh, this <laughs> this one, <laughs> this one, I'm pretty sure they 100 percent knew that something was going on. Yes. <laughs> yeah. well, Te I don't know. I, and I don't know that the pilots had any time really to tell anybody what was going on because they were, but I mean, you know, 30,000 feet to an half minute. And what do you, feet, tell, what do you tell them? We're going to yes. flip over a and couple of times. Buckle your seatbelt. Hold on. Barnstorming. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. The pilot just turned off no the fasten your seatbelt sign. <laughs> yeah, that's, I, I mean, well, they even talk about some people, uh, that some people were not buckled in and were uh, and flying around the like cabin popcorn. a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's, it's amazing that more people weren't injured even by that alone. Yeah. yeah. And, and I can't imagine 
uh, facing four and a half G's of pressure at one point, My which goodness. is what they did in the middle in the middle of their two barrel rolls in the 747. <laughs> they, 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 they leveled out at such a point that it would have thrown you at four and a half G's. That's, uh, that's you know, I would be over 800 pounds there for a couple of seconds. And I'm like, wow, I better <laughs> go on a diet. <laughs> yeah, the, you know, the... Uh, uh, the the reports and you know i've i've read a number of these reports from from uh, aircraft accidents or aircraft incidents and what <laughs> they they have a they have a way of like speaking in this like bureaucratic talk that really does uh, come off absolutely hysterical you know where they're saying oh well it it exited controlled flight it's like yeah, yeah. <laughs> It sure did. <laughs> it sounds like a bad thing. I don't think that's good. I don't think exiting no. control flight is, is, is a good it's, thing. Yeah. It's amazing. Certainly one way to say it. <laughs> yeah, right? It is amazing to think that they were able to get control of that plane back. I mean... It is. It fell below 10,000 feet. I mean, they were... I mean, they fallen 30,000 feet in two and a half minutes and that they Wild. were able to finally get a, get a vision of the horizon and get that back in. The other thing that's just amazing here is that this was an extremely small mechanical problem. Yeah. Um, that was magnified by the use of the autopilot and, and the, the crew being distracted by what was going on, all sorts of things. But this was an extremely small mechanical problem caused one of the four engines to hang that ended up being this dramatic, you know, barrel rolling your, your yeah. 747. Uh, and, you know, they're not really meant to be fly, flown upside down. It's not really how they're, they're designed. They're not sport aircraft, you know. No. Uh, and, uh, uh, and so it's, it's, this is another of those examples where, you, you know, you think you have everything squared away and even the smallest thing can cause something, you know, very dramatic. Uh, and it's uh, it's terrifying to th- when you look at it. I mean, it tore one of the vertical stabilizers uh, or horizontal stabilizers off, the actuator off, and drained out the hydraulic fluid and pulled the wheels out. And uh, I mean, uh, it's when you look at that, you're like, how did the whole plane not break apart? Yeah. Uh, and I mean, so the the the, the enormous amount of forces that that plane was subjected to in the course of that. Uh, it's just it's mind boggling. And there's people inside that when that's going on. Yeah. And that's it's you know, and they applauded when the plane got back to level flat. I think I would have, too. Yeah. I don't think <laughs> I've been thinking, how'd you get me here? I think like, I'm alive. Yay! Yeah, that's a it's a miracle to think, oh, man. Uh, well, and it, it is because it is incredible how small a problem it was and how the mistakes they made, which, you know, we're able mm-hmm. to talk about now. Mm-hmm. And you would say we're only able to talk about it because they they uh, miraculously. Uh, yeah, the engineer to... missed missed one step on the yeah. checklist. Uh, and, and, and uh, you know, that's I mean, think about the plane spinning so much then that the engineer can't look at. He's yelling based on what he's hearing because he can't look up at the dials because he's pinned to the to the yeah. uh, deck from the from the g forces. Yeah, the, the the poor you know reserve pilot in the back of the plane trying to get to the front. He can't even you know, and the plane starts yeah, that's barrel a... rolls and yeah. Uh, yeah, that's uh, not something that they could do <laughs> could do easily. But I, I mean, you got to give it to him. He was he was at least trying. Uh, which oh yeah, I, I mean, I mean, I th- I mean it, it, despite the fact that the crew made mistakes, they, they said the pilot got over focused on what was going on with one engine, and so he didn't notice what was going on with the rest of the plane. That they were slowly, you know, swinging right, and they didn't know they were slowly banking. They couldn't tell, and you know that it just then when it when it exited controlled flight, it went into a cloud bank, so that they had no idea of a horizon. I can't imagine. That your plane is literally spinning and you're yeah. in your harness, but I mean, you think you'd know if you were hanging upside down. But I mean, they had no no horizon that they could see, and that was yeah. literally making them not believe their gauges. They're like, that can't be possible that that's going on because you know no one's ever yeah. barrel rolled a 747 before. It's not what it yeah, does. It can't be. Yeah, and uh, so and and I mean, just the the numbers on this one, how quickly it flew or how quickly it dropped and things like that are just terrifying. But I that takes such a presence of mind to have gone through that terrifying event. To you know, once he got control of his, once he got a, a point of reference that he got back control of that aircraft, that's just absolutely extraordinary. And at first, 
they thought we'll just continue on to our destination. It took them a while to figure out that the plane had been so damaged that they had to declare an emergency yeah. and land, landed in Gosher Airport. Yeah, they, uh, you know, I, I try to think of how disorienting it must be, um, must have been. But between the G's and, you know, the fact that the plane has been spinning, uh, you you, th- you think of like, you know, when you're upside down because you can just kind of feel it. And I, how shaken up you must be after spinning is that there's the, the way, you know, we feel down by kind of feeling where gravity's going. And when you're spinning in a plane like that, I mean, you're not going to feel gravity. Gravity's not going to be the greatest force acting on which direction is is yeah, down. They, they talk about that, especially in smaller aircraft, where yeah. a pilot can become dis- disoriented and not know what's, what's up and down. Uh, but, I mean, it's you don't think about that happening in the 747 that was no. starting out at, you know, 40,000 feet. And, and, my uh, goodness. Yeah, yeah, this, yeah, the, yeah, my goodness. That's all you can say. I mean, this, I'm glad I wasn't on the plane, but if I was, boy, I'd still be telling the story today. Oh, my God. <laughs> that would be... <laughs> But <laughs> it was an exciting story. That would be it. Yeah, I was in that airplane. When I was swinging around upside down. I think that the passengers had some idea that they were flying around upside down. I think they <laughs> they must have had. I mean, at, at least at some point they knew something was definitely going very wrong. Yes. Right. That's you're like okay. We seem to uh, not be flying as level as we once were. <laughs> as we were. Yeah. You got. I mean, when you look at the pictures, because they because uh, they yeah. have these drawings that the NTSB does, and in one of them, it's just like a drawing of the plane pointing straight nose down. It's like, that's, yeah, <laughs> that's not an attitude that a plane's supposed to have. Uh, and uh, oh my gosh, just what an exciting and terrifying story. And again, oh, yeah. one that could have been this massive tragedy. Yeah. Uh, and so there's just uh, it's such a relief at the end when the airplane just lands and and you know they fix it up and keep flying that plane. You know. And that ends up being, you know, one of the big things of these two stories is that they were incredibly terrifying uh, for a really rather short amount of time. Uh, mm-hmm. This is one that again happened, and you know, most of it happened in yeah, maybe a handful. Yeah, a nine-hour flight. This happened over an era, uh, over a period of what, like five minutes, two and a half. Yeah. Only, only two and a half minutes of dropping thirty thousand feet. There. Yeah, yeah that's that had to feel like forever, though. <laughs> yes. Two and a half minutes. If you look at your watch, two and a half minutes is a long time. But you know, yeah. not when you're dropping that much feet. Maybe it feels like very fast. I don't know. You know. <laughs> I, I absolutely uh, terrifying. You but, know, there's at least one person though that was asleep that missed the whole thing. There's at least one person on that flight who woke up and said, "What do you mean? What do you mean? I didn't feel anything. <laughs> Did we hit some turbulence? Uh, <laughs> Why are we landing in San Francisco? What happened? You know, and they 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 they're flying so far, and they have such it's so fast that something like this, you know, and I mean that's part of what I feel like makes uh, flying terrifying. Is that you can, you know, you're in the plane and you feel a little turbulence. And I mean, that can freak everyone out. Uh, But you never know. I mean, like in this case, this is something where a little bit of turbulence or you might have noticed something small and then suddenly it was something big. It was. Uh, This is the first time I saw in terms of talking about an airplane. Again, I'm not a pilot, but talking in terms of airplane noises, they talk about uh, altitude and speed as being currency. Yeah, uh, and you know, you run out of currency, and you you know, you go bankrupt in Monopoly. You know, there's nothing to mortgage, uh, and uh, and that they were rapidly losing their currency there, and that's that's how you yeah. you know, I guess that's how pilots must think about it. But you know, they you know, they fell three quarters of the way they could fall before they would go splash, uh, yeah. and uh, in that last quarter, they got control of everything, and that's 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 scary to think of. I, I don't know if you really realize how high up you are, how much of that you have to give up before you're, you know, before that's that. You know? Well, and it feels like it should take a long time, but man, tuna. It is. If you fell out of an airplane at height, then apparently, even if you're dropping really fast, it's still going to take you about three minutes uh, before you, yeah. more before you hit the ground. <laughs> I, I wouldn't yeah. want to think that you had two and a half minutes of free fall, uh, and then you'd still be ten thousand feet up. Yeah, you know, yikes! I don't know, maybe maybe you've run. I don't know. Maybe you froze to death or ran out of oxygen. I honestly don't know. But uh, 
Fortunately, uh, we we have not had that experience. Of course, there yeah. was the guy that fell out of the SR seventy one, but the he SR seventy one, yeah, for most uh, well, of the yeah, for, uh, for most of that, yeah. Well, I mean, then that was an ejection seat, though. It had pressure yeah, suit and all true. sorts of yeah. stuff. So, but yeah, yeah not, I don't not know. just I mean, sitting. I, in the plane. I never really, I, you know, when you're up in a plane, you're looking down. They're going, "That's a long way down." I never really think about, you know, if I fell right now, how, how long? long? <laughs> how long would it take? It's, you're dropping the you rock to see how from, deep the the. <laughs> you get some idea from this one, uh, yeah. That uh, it would be a lot. Yeah, at one point they thought they were stalling, and so they're they're throttling up engines, even though they're pointing nose down. And and uh, yeah, it's oh my gosh. So these are certainly exciting stories. Uh, I, I yeah. like to talk about history for a lot of reasons, uh, and uh, one of the reasons is because history is just a really good story. Uh, these are both just really good stories. They are stories that are you know exciting and thrilling, and they really get your pulse racing. And the the cool thing about both these stories is that the reason that they are nearly forgotten history, that they're not nearly as well remembered as others, is because the outcome was good, and they would yeah. be much more remembered if the outcome was not. Uh, and so those are these are a lot more fun to tell. It's a lot harder to tell those stories yeah. that we do, but it's a lot harder to tell those stories where the in the end they were not able to. Uh, but these are you know these are. Are, are incredible stories and uh, it's nice to know that our you know that we have pilots in the front that they're not just bus drivers that they know what they're doing and they can do something when things go wrong yeah i certainly hope if, if i'm ever in a situation like this that we you know we have pilots that are as skilled and able to keep a level head despite uh, chaos as you know as the pilots that were flying these mm-hmm. planes and in both these instances they learn quite a lot about air yeah. safety and way to do things and they change procedures and how things are done and and uh, the air travel is safer uh, because yeah. uh, because of these accidents and partly because these accidents turned out the way that they did so that we have a full understanding of what happened yeah. as opposed to trying to pick through the rubble and figure out what happened yeah yeah that's always a lot harder thank you for listening to this episode of the history guy podcast we hope you enjoyed this episode of forgotten history and if you did you can find more on our website thehistoryguy.com We release podcasts every two weeks, so stick around if you want to hear more podcasts of Forgotten History. You can also find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Patreon. You can even get a personalized message from the History Guy himself on Cameo.